Yeah, we collect a lot of poop. We have thousands of samples from around the world, and that's how we understand what's happening in the gut. We look at poop to understand the bacteria that are in the poop and what they're doing. We look at the metabolites, the metabolomics, the proteins. We even look at what are the proteins from the human that are in there that can reflect the immune system. So poop is very important for us. Hey, Ram, how's it going? It's going, Carl. Wow. What a week. What a week. It's been crazy. We mentioned it last week where the skies in New York City were orange because of these wildfires and everything seems to be back to normal that way. But there's so much other stuff going on. Yeah, especially in our industry of biotechnology. One of the hot sub-industries is the cultivated meat industry. And we heard some big news. There is a company called Biotech Foods. Very, very interesting name where they're growing cultivated meat, but they are now opening up the largest cultivated meat factory in San Sebastian, Spain, which is a huge development because there's a lot of cultivated meat deniers, a lot of haters out there. People pop up in their comments saying, oh, it's just not going to work. A lot of spin, just cultivated meat is just not the way to go. And I wonder if that's just people working at Purdue or something. You, you say that. And yet at the same time, those companies are very much investors in that space. And I think specifically, you're referencing a post that John Cumbers did talking about a UK cultivated meat startup called Uncommon that is focused on cultivated pork, which is a huge industry. They just received a $30 million Series A funding. And there was a lot of hate in the comments from farmers saying that animals are not mistreated, which I'm sure is true, that this technology is not going to advance quickly enough. People forget that technology advances exponentially and that this is all a Ponzi scheme. There's people who are like, fake meat is toxic to agriculture. And I think this goes back to what you said in our last podcast, where you said that there was this very striking graphic that was shown at SymbioBeta that showed that Again, I'm going to get the number wrong. 60% of the animals on the planet are agricultural animals. There's only 30% human and 6% wild animals. It is bizarre. The first computer ever made was probably hundreds of thousands of dollars and only for a few people. And granted, a computer is a very specialized equipment. It was in the beginning, but then it came down in price. And granted, the cultivated meat industry is going toe-to-toe with the industrial meat production world, which has been around for centuries, maybe not centuries, on the industrial side, but at least livestock farming has been around. And they figured out pricing. And yeah, it does cost a lot of money to create and build a factory, all that capital costs. But the plan is that over time, those costs will come down because you'll start making a return and paying off all that equipment. And then everything pays for itself. And we know a lot of people that are betting on cultivated meat, that they are making big strides when there is something that's part of the process that costs a lot of money. There's someone else trying to figure out how to bring that cost down so they can support this industry. So I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I don't think it's a Ponzi scheme. I don't even know how that makes any sense, that person's comment. But I do think there is definitely a place, there's a need, an absolute need for cultivated meat. And I'm really happy to see that biotech foods is investing and having the largest facility. I know that there are big facilities in Singapore. We know people that are making unique bioreactors specifically for cultivated meat. So there's a lot of people playing in this space it'll come down in cost, just like everything else that has been developed. Every technology that has been developed that's now in our pockets was expensive. Now it's more affordable. So I grew up around livestock agriculture and my dad was a meat cutter. So I know what it looks like. and, And I've seen how that industry has changed and it has become definitely much more industrialized over the last few years. There's a lot of pros and cons to this. So... The challenge that cultivated meat has is the flavor. And a lot of the companies are focusing on- That's one challenge. Okay. One of the many challenges of cultivated meat is getting the flavor right. And right now, the biggest challenge is just getting to price parity. If you really are interested in learning more about this, listen to our episode with Orbillion. 
and we do dig into cultivated meat a bit, but the flavor is the most important. The flavor will be what people will pay for, even on the higher end, if the flavor is done correctly. A lot of the meat that we eat today from animals, they have a very unique flavor profile because those animals are in the environment and they're eating different foods. And those foods are grown from the earth. And the earth has its own microbiome and it helps create unique flavors that then go into our meat. Then we end up tasting when we eat it. So the microbiome plays a very important role in the environment as well as in our bodies. It's very interesting to me that our cells, our human body, they're about 30 trillion human cells that have our DNA, but the microbiome is estimated to be 39 trillion microbial cells, which is like the bacteria, viruses, and fungi that live in and on us. So there's more foreign DNA that make up our bodies than actual DNA that has human cells that have our DNA in it. So I think that's really fascinating that we have all of this foreign DNA that help us run our bodies and more, maybe our minds and our thoughts. <laughs> Very fascinating. So you're talking about the microbiome, which is going to be the subject of our episode today. It has been mentioned on previous episodes of Grow Everything. And just to remind people, and we'll go through this again in our interview, the microbiome is a vast army of microbes that live in our body and on the outside of our body. There's a soil microbiome that plants depend on, and the microbiome is all these organisms that live with in or on us or in the soil, and they all live symbiotically with each other. And in this interview, we're talking to Stephanie Culler of Persephone. She's someone who I've known for a few years, I haven't really gotten to know her very well until the last six months or so, and am so fascinated by her and her company, Persephone, because they're focused on studying the microbiome to be able to develop therapeutics or medicines for it. And Stephanie is going to introduce a couple of terms throughout the interview, which we will define, but she mentions wild type organisms, which are basically any organism that is the most common organism in a natural population. So when she talks about wild microbes in our gut, these are the microbes that would normally be there if we don't change our gut or that we're supposed to be born with, or they grow up with us. The other thing Stephanie is going to mention is dysbiosis. And dysbiosis is characterized by a disruption to the microbiome. So if there's some kind of imbalance in your microbiome, let's say on your skin or in your gut, because you eat too much of one food or you're sick, maybe you're undergoing cancer treatment, which is something that Stephanie is going to talk about. Those kinds of things all cause dysbiosis, which can make you unhealthy. It's a great conversation. And with that, let's just start the interview. Hey, Stephanie, it's so great to have you here on Grow Everything. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, we're very excited too. Stephanie, it's a pleasure to speak with you. I had a chance to meet you at Symbio Beta, which we will talk about more. That was a very jam-packed with all the innovations that are happening in biology. But let's start from the beginning. What sparked your interest in biology and what sparked your interest in the microbiome specifically? Yeah, I've always been interested in biology and I have had a specific actual passion in oncology and cancer research. Fortunately, I lost both of my grandmothers to cancer when I was a young teenager. And that's what really inspired me to become a scientist, to eventually doing my PhD at Caltech and being one of Christina Smolke's first graduate students in the field of synthetic biology. And I would say it's really at Caltech that I got the bug for biology and how, as a chemical engineer, I could change the future of engineering biology, essential, with this brand new field, synthetic biology at the time. This September marks 20 years since I started graduate school and that Christina was my PhD advisor. After Caltech, I joined the company where we're located at in San Diego, Genomatica also a synthetic biology company, and there had the opportunity to help commercialize important renewable products in the commodity chemical space by engineering microbes to convert plant-based feedstocks. And it was there I started to fall in love with microbial metabolism. How could we use various omics technologies to manipulate bacteria into anything we wanted them to become, any type of microbial chemical factory? 
Microbial metabolism is the way a microbe obtains the energy and nutrients it needs to live and reproduce. Microbes use many different types of metabolic strategies, and Stephanie mentions that some microbes live on sugar, and others we mentioned in the podcast can live on carbon dioxide or methane or different chemicals. Omics Technologies refers to technologies that have been developed to understand the central dogma of life. The central dogma, you might remember, says that information in life goes from DNA to RNA to protein, or in some cases from RNA to protein. The four big omics technologies are genomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, and metabolomics. So genomics studies DNA or genomes, transcriptomics studies the RNA transcriptome, all the RNAs that a cell produces, proteomics studies all the proteins, and metabolomics studies all the metabolites that are used by a cell to survive. I had always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And for about seven years of being at Genomatica, myself and my co-founder, who was also at Genomatica, we wanted to start a company. What area could really benefit from our expertise as both chemical engineers, systems and synthetic biologists, with also a passion for fermentation and biomanufacturing. And we thought really microbiome could be a place that could have an impact. For us, we were really fascinated by the role of the microbiome in virtually every disease that we know of. It impacts us before we're born, throughout our life, even how well we respond to chemotherapy drugs or immunotherapy drugs, for example. And to our surprise, we saw that there's a lack of quantitative rigor being applied to understanding how do our microbes in our gut impact our immune system and our overall health. And so that's why we established Persephone almost six years ago to develop a technology platform that really can unlock the potential of the microbiome, understanding its mechanism from human data to develop both therapeutics and now consumer-facing products. That's fantastic. I wonder, Stephanie, if you could just, for anybody who doesn't know what the microbiome is, and if you haven't listened to any of our previous episodes, could you just give people a quick overview of what the microbiome is? Absolutely. We focus on particularly the gut microbiome, which are the microbes that line our GI tract. They serve to promote normal immune function to prevent and fight disease. One thing that I didn't actually recognize till I, I started the company and got into this space, that the reason why the microbiome has such an influence on our health is that 80% of our immune cells are in our gut, 80%. And so the way I've thought about the microbiome is that it's a gatekeeper of our immune system. Yeah, and I seem to remember when you and I first met, and I think it was probably at a Symbiobeta many years ago, you were talking about collecting poop samples. Does my memory serve me right, or am I making that up? Yeah, we collect a lot of poop. We have thousands of poop samples from around the world, <laughs> and that's how we understand what's happening in the gut. We look at poop to understand the bacteria that are in the poop and what they're doing. We look at the metabolites, the metabolomics, the protein. We even look at what are the proteins from the human that are in there that can reflect the immune system. So poop is very important for us. It allows us to understand the composition, the function of the microbiome with regards to any disease, how it may impact therapeutic treatments, and now more recently in infants, how it could potentially impact their health for the rest of their lives. Wow. So how many microorganisms are there in an infant human versus an adult human? Like, how does the microbiome change over time as you grow as a human? Yeah, quite dramatically. So in a healthy adult, we have on the average of maybe 400 to 1,000 species. We have trillions of bacteria, but we only have about 400 to 1,000 species. And it can weigh up to three to five pounds, our microbiome. So it, it, it's pretty heavy. Is that just um, our gut microbiome, is, by the way? That's not like our skin. Our that's gut. just our gut. That's just our gut microbiome. Um, it can It can weigh a few pounds. Yes, yes. And infants, interestingly, in the first few years of life, our microbiome is developing. We see a lot of infants with around 40 species. So adults have about anywhere from 10-fold to 20-fold more species in their gut. And within the first three years of life, 
the microbiome evolves quite extensively. Initially from breast milk, there are only limited species. As the babies start to wean and start to eat solid foods, that's when the microbiome really grows. And around the age of three to five is when it starts to settle to actually look more like an adult microbiome. Now, I seem to remember also in a very recent conversation we had, you said that there's an alarming number of infants born with an incomplete microbiome. And I think you said something like on the order of 50%. It was like one of those statistics that I've repeated a lot. Can you illuminate us? Yeah, yeah. Today, babies are born without the right microbes that train their immune system. We think there's also a role in cognitive development, maybe why we see higher levels of autism in other cognitive development disorders, for example. But early on in our lives, the microbiome is very critical to how the immune system develops and how we eventually fight disease and prevent it. And we think that alterations in the microbiome very early on in life may make children much more predisposed to having food allergies, which may be why we have such a high level of food allergies now globally, aspects to autoimmune disease, asthma, diabetes, and even many cancers. And so we sought out to understand that problem better in the U.S. And we believe that the the microbiome of these infants is largely impacted by antibiotic use, poor maternal diet, formula use, and C-section births. And so we launched the largest study ever to be done in the U.S. to map the infant's newborn gut microbiome called My Baby Biome last summer. And within three months, we completed this study. Over 400 infants, over 700 enrolled, representing 48 out of 50 states in this country. So highly representative of U.S. population. And to what Carl was mentioning, we found something very concerning. Over half of them did not have the right microbes. And more so, only about 10% seem to have the right kinds of microbes and the right amount. And we, we have a good sense scientifically of what these babies need because we have control populations worldwide, those that are non-Westernized. So in the U.S., we've looked at the Old Order Mennonites, the Amish, compared them, for example, to inner city kids, infants in New York, for example, huge differences. So we have a really good sense of what that infant microbiome should look like, even hunter and gatherers in Africa, for example. You mentioned that 10% of the infants in your study had the right type of microbiome. What were the commonalities between those infants? Because it was such a small sample set, it's unclear that the majority of them were vaginally born and breastfed. But I think what concerned us even more so, people know that C-section births have a higher risk for developing disease and, and other aspects. But what seems very concerning even more is that we think if you're born vaginally and breastfed, that everything is okay. That's simply not the case. And the way infants inherit the microbiome is from their mother. So if the mother is missing these microbes, baby is not going to get it. And so that's what's starting to happen. We think that this is actually a multi-generational problem that just keeps getting worse and worse. And so just to, and correct me if I'm wrong, when an infant is born vaginally, they are receiving essential microbes by that kind of vaginal birth, but then also from the mother's breast milk. Is yes. that correct? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So breast milk has a microbiome. It's not as much as the, when the baby is coming out essentially and gets exposed, but there's microbes impacting them kind of both ways. I find the gut microbiome studies and the work that you're doing so interesting because I know that the gut is called our second brain and you could do drug delivery to the brain via the gut if you do it the right way. It's one of the ways you can bypass the blood-brain barrier. But I would think that having a dysfunctional or having, is it dysbiosis? Is that what it is called? Yes, yes. could also have a huge impact on neurological diseases, depression, things like that. Is that the case? Absolutely. There are a number of studies out there demonstrating that there are dysbiosis or also we call it damage of the microbiome associated with depression, but there's been some very high impact studies on Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. And so there's definitely this gut brain connection, even multiple sclerosis, for example. And there, there seems to be quite a bit of research happening there, but the translation into therapeutics is early infancy. Yeah, I have a question about that gut brain access. 
And of course, there's affiliation with some disorders. But how does the gut-brain axis run our day-to-day lives? What are some examples of the gut influencing our decision-making or our thinking in a day-to-day operational way? Yes, it's a good question. So there's actually some recent papers suggesting that your microbes actually influence your interest in exercising. Your microbiome influences how much you want to eat and sometimes your cravings. So while we're just starting to understand that, there are some of these really good studies that are linking those kinds of outcomes. It likely is impacting our thoughts. If it's making us, suggesting us to, to exercise or not, or when we want to start to go for some desserts, for example, more often than not. So there is starting to be that kind of behavioral link in the microbiome, as well as some aspects in depression. But those studies are really difficult to prove. But there does seem to be more and more suggestions of that happening. It reminds me of that Disney movie Inside Out, where it's actually the emotions in the brain, but they should make a movie about microbes controlling the kid in the movie, like the star in the movie. That'd be really interesting. Teach a lot about microbiology and your health. But yeah, I know. we'll write that. Carl and I will start drafting that script. Exactly, tomorrow. <laughs> we'll, you'll be our consultant. You'll yeah. be our consultant. I want want to talk about the study that Persephone is doing, but I'm just curious, Stephanie, given all that you know about the microbiome, what do you do to keep your microbiome healthy? Most of my day, that's what I think about when I'm eating. To be honest, first thing in the morning when I'm eating my breakfast, I'm worried about fiber and I'm worried about polyphenol intake. I definitely think about it throughout all the meals. I want to make sure that I'm getting the right fiber, but also then fermented food. So for example, in the morning I have kefir. I'm a huge proponent of that. I think one of the issues that we see in the United States and why we have so much dysbiosis here and associated with these chronic conditions is the lack of fiber in our Western diet. Fiber, 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 because you really want to see the right microbes and you want to give them a competitive advantage. You know, what we see so much, even, for example, in advanced stage cancer patients that we've been profiling, they've severely damaged microbiomes. When I think about that compared to a healthy individual, I think forest versus a desert. They don't have the right functions and in the place of the right microbes are potential pathogens. Very inflammatory. They change the whole oxygen balance of the gut. The gut's not supposed to have any oxygen. Most of the bacteria in our gut are what we call anaerobes. They're oxygen sensitive. They can't live in an oxygen-containing environment. But people who have really damaged microbiomes, the microbes that thrive are those that can consume oxygen and live under that environment. And so we want to do whatever we can when we eat to encourage the right microbes to win in any of these types of battles. That's how I think of it. Yeah, it's super interesting. So my father, who right now is 91, a few years ago, kept suffering from chest pain, was going to the doctor, cardiologist, they found nothing wrong. And I kept saying, it's got to be your gut. It's something in your gut. So I convinced him to go to an integrative health physician, and they ended up doing like poop samples over the course of let's say a week, he couldn't believe how often he had to send a sample in. And it came back that he had dysbiosis. And I said, what you should do is you should fast for a week and then gently introduce new food so that you can rebuild your gut. He didn't want to do the fasting, but he did change his diet and he's been a lot better. But he was very surprised by that process. And then when he found out that his gut was not doing so well, he did change his lifestyle. Yeah, the diet is the number one influencer of the microbiome. It can happen immediately because the microbes, within such a short amount of time, we've seen it in mouse studies that we've been doing, but they can really, like within a week, you can start to change the metabolism of the gut microbiome. Question. So what is like a microbiome diagnostic tool? You mentioned looking at poop, for example, but is that the only way? Are there different methodologies? I'm a mom. How could I get an assessment of my microbiome? And then also an assessment of my child who is two. I also am very interested to see how we compare and maybe what he's lacking because it may be TMI, but he was a cesarean. So I'm just curious to know what our status is and how we could improve it if it's not good. Yeah. So for example, our data analysis for now 
is just for R&D or in our clinical studies. We hope to potentially commercialize it. There are commercial analyses on the market today. For example, for infants, I don't know if they look at children. Tiny Health is a company that just looks at the poop samples of babies. And then we have other companies like Viome and others that, that look at stool samples. But I don't think there is companies today that are thinking as holistically as you are, right? That, you know, what's in common, time, how can this change and how can I be really actionable? That's where the field is struggling at the moment is thinking about how to be really actionable on that. And what we've learned from our studies, and we're actually about to launch with a large grocery chain, a household name, they're all over the country, a food is medicine study. We're really trying to understand how food impacts the gut microbiome. The ultimate goal, which would take thousands of participants to be in this study, is that we'd like to write food prescriptions based on your microbiome makeup. And when we look at the microbiome, we're not just sequencing what bacteria are there. We want to know what they're doing and how does it impact us? How is it impacting our immune system? That's what we can see in the stool samples. And so that's what we are envisioning with this strategic partner. But we acknowledge it's going to take years to get there. We need thousands and thousands of data points. We need to have a better understanding of diet as well and how certain aspects of diet impact the microbiome, right? We all eat different things throughout the day. What's the most dominant aspect that's actually modifying what the microbiome does and how could that be changed? On the note of sampling, microbiome and looking at poop is the most convenient. Is it though? Well, (laughs) the other ones are most invasive. This is, I would say, non-invasive versus invasive. So (laughs) as parts of colonoscopies um, or, you know, so we want to avoid that. Yeah. So for now, it's, it's the most. Some companies are working on pills that can sample your small intestine, but a lot of the actions in the colon. So there isn't that technology yet, but I would say in the next five years, it might be something like that. And that could be easier, but you still have to retrieve the, the pill out of your poop. So <laughs> poop is still going to be a part of the equation. There's no getting, <laughs> there's no getting around the poop. It's so- got to come out. <laughs> the toilet though like, yeah the toilet i'm sure there's i don't know if you've looked into this i've heard rumblings of it of like a diagnostic toilet so then it just okay you just poop and then i, I don't know how yeah, far i need that's to in progress along. okay okay that's in progress i know they're trying to commercialize i know that yeah i think actually that was announced this week yeah, yeah. and it, i just think of like how complicated that must be given the number of microbes that you have in your microbiome you said it's four to five hundred and they live in different concentrations, probably based on how you feed them. I'm sure that you guys do this internally in terms of being able to characterize all these microbes. Yeah, yeah. And we take advantage of machine learning whenever we can. Obviously, that's a lot of features. And then when you think about the thousands of genes that they have and then metabolize, it becomes quickly overwhelming. And that's the kind of thing that machine learning can really power through. Now, you guys are running a study called Argonaut, where you're mapping the microbiomes of advanced stage cancer patients. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? What insights are you hoping to gain? And What's the status of the study? Yeah, so Argonaut is meant to profile at least 4,000 cancer patients with a variety of solid tumors to really understand the impact of the gut microbiome on response to treatment for those different cancers. To date, most data sets have been pretty small. They've lacked adequate representation of ethnic and racial minorities and also the quality of the data. And so that's why we launched Argonaut, and we've been looking for several pharma partners to participate in this. Our first partner is Johnson & Johnson and Janssen Oncology, which is part of J&J. And there we are focused on the colorectal cancer arm of the study. We're looking at actually two types of populations, people today who are actively fighting colorectal cancer, as well as people who are healthy but are either low or high risk for developing colorectal cancer. The goal here is to develop therapies that can both treat colorectal cancer but also prevent it. Could we intercept 
somebody in their 20s and prevent them from ever having colorectal cancer. That's the vision. In order to understand that, it has to be a long-term study. So this is an eight-year longitudinal study in partnership with J&J. We collect several samples, and in order to understand who's at risk for colorectal cancer beyond some of these familial type of risk factors, we look at colonoscopy findings. So we're basically taking blood and stool samples from these participants before and after their colonoscopies and then monitoring them over this eight-year period to understand health outcomes. And unfortunately, what we are looking to also see is who may get cancer. And that will help us then with our machine learning then better predict one, who would be potentially at risk for cancer, but also what are the biomarkers we need to target for our therapies. I would imagine given that you guys are looking at so many samples, at so many microbes, at so many genes, the kind of machine learning stack or the computational part of Persephone has to be pretty robust. Absolutely. Half of our company are computational data scientists. And we spend quite a bit of money running our cloud (laughs) services. Yeah, and the methods are constantly evolving. We've broken our bioinformatics pipeline many times. For example, the infant study. We need to not just know species, but we needed to get down to strain and substrain level with our sequencing and analyses. That was not trivial. So we had to rebuild all of our tools from scratch and sequence as many strains we could get our hands on to build our own reference databases. And there's definitely a lot of public data out there, and it's been increasing since we started the company, but many times it's insufficient for us to address the problems we're actually trying to solve. And yes, it is very intense. And what about in terms of culturing all these microbes? Because you're talking about microbes that live in the gut anaerobically. I would imagine that's also a huge challenge. You must have special cultures that you grow them in. Describe what that looks like. Absolutely. At any time you're in San Diego, happy to host you at our lab. We work It's a very low throughput environment, to be honest. We are looking at ways to make it more scalable. We work in anaerobic chambers. They're essentially like glove boxes that don't have oxygen. We use special gases to flush the atmosphere so that the bacteria that we're propagating can thrive. And so that's where we have all of our agar plates. We have our cultures in these anaerobic chambers. When we grow our strains in fermenters, we can do that on the bench, but we again have to have special gases so that the microbes can thrive and grow. But it is very challenging. Historically, in the microbiome, it was thought that they're unculturable. That's simply not the case, but they are very, very difficult. And sometimes for us to isolate certain microbes, it will take months. And oftentimes we have to figure out the right media that these very difficult to grow microbes will thrive on. And also we preserve the stool samples so we can isolate the microbes. Not everything makes it in that preservation process. A lot of microbes die. They're very sensitive. Yeah, I would think they also, many of those microbes, they're living symbiotically. They can't live in isolation or living in isolation is very difficult for them since they live in these colonies with all these other microbes together that maybe they're feeding each other or some metabolite from one is fed to the other. I, I would imagine yep. that makes Cross it very feeding. challenging, makes it very challenging as well. Exactly. That seems to be a, a big problem for the, the species that are normally of most interest that hasn't been really explored. We're always trying to find out, was there a cofactor that we're missing or some other substrate? Because there is a lot of cross-feeding in the gut. Wow. Yeah. But that's an analogy to even our civilization. Isolation can be detrimental to a lot of people. But I'm actually curious, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, What are some of the super microorganisms in our microbiome? First, what do they do? And what are the common ones that are missing that we need to have more of like across the population? Yeah, it's a good question. We are still as a field trying to identify and label them. The key species in the gut that we are think of the most important, we call them the keystone. So it's being taken from ecology, essentially. And once you remove a keystone, the rest of the community kind of falters, right? And so around the world, those kind of studies have been evaluated in healthy human populations. It's different. 
different species around the world, largely because of the diets and geographies, but many of them have the same functions. And that's why we at Persephone really think about the key functions of the gut. The majority of those that seem to be paramount to the gut are those that are involved with butyrate production or short-chain fatty acids. For example, they essentially for the cells in the GI tract, the human cells, they provide energy. They give it ATP, essentially, so they can drive their cellular processes. Other microbes are really important for other metabolic pathways, like you might have heard of bile acids and transformation of bile acids. Dysregulation of that particular node has been shown to potentially cause cancer, like colorectal cancer and other things. It's difficult to give an exact definition. Uh, people will fight on <laughs> what's the keystone strains here but these core functions. And that's what we have observed that when those functions are completely disregulated or almost nearly missing, that's when we see the pathogens overtake. It's very clear. It's almost like you remove these key sets of functions, all of a sudden everything dies. And we've seen that in animal models. And when we've given mice, for example, antibiotics, what that can do basically obliterates the microbiome and doesn't grow back properly. And that's a way to also see what are the most important species. The gut microbe that everybody knows is E. coli. What percentage of the population does E. coli comprise? That is a very good question. I would say quite, quite a bit, but at low levels. What we see, we don't think we see the pathogenic E. coli in most people. And it's rare that we see it at any considerable levels, but we see it there in general in, in low amounts. And initially, we thought that the microbiome was mainly E. coli, but that's simply not the case because they didn't know how to culture the microbiome, and that was before we had next-gen sequencing. So I met you at SynBioBeta, and particularly you were on a panel on space biomanufacturing or space exploration. Why were you on that panel, and how does a microbiome get affected in space or zero gravity? Please elucidate. Yeah, yeah. I was on that panel, obviously microbiome impacts our immune health and overall health. And it's been recently shown, because there's been some microbiome analysis of astronauts, especially a special NASA twin study, where one twin stayed at the International Space Station for, I think, for a year, and they compared the microbiomes of, of them, as well as other astronauts. And they did find that the microbiome shifted quite a bit under microgravity, but also maybe the impact of the diet that they have on the space station, and mostly their microbiome kind of reconfigured when they came back. The concern that we have, though, is that the changes in the microbiome were shifted towards dysbiosis. So if we were going to continue and have longer space travel, so, you know, thinking about going to Mars or even colonizing different places, then the long-term impact of space travel on the microbiome should really be considered. If we are anticipating the microbiome to suddenly start to become damaged and dysbiotic, how could we start to develop probiotic or prebiotic interventions to really prevent that kind of alteration so that these, these astronauts and anybody doing space travel can have as robust as possible immune system given that connection between the microbiome and immune health. I guess on one level, it makes a lot of sense, but on the other level, it just shows how much we don't know. And I just wonder how much of an impact that ionizing radiation that astronauts are exposed to has on the microbiome. It's a good question, and obviously it's a bit hard to understand and evaluate, but the close that we can get to is potentially thinking about cancer patients receiving radiation, and that's something that we have thought of. It's hard to understand radiation's impact on the microbiome that's been discussed. What's been seen, radiation really impacts the mucosa, and depending on the kinds of bacteria you have, it could really cause that to be highly inflamed. So it's, it's a symbiosis that the radiation on the human side really impacts, but then the microbiome kind of reacts to that as well. And then that can go down a certain path and cause a lot of inflammation. That's what's been thought of right now in the field of cancer radiation, particularly, and that's how I've been trying to think about it. But you're right. It's an absolute concern. Yeah, I think the bottom line, and I think we, I don't think we've said it on the podcast, but I think people in the synthetic biology community have said it. It's we're not going to space without 
better understanding biology in general. And just the fact that there is ionizing radiation has an impact on human biology. But this thing about the microbiome, I just had no idea. So it just shows another thing that we don't know about that we're going to really have to at least address if we're going to start living in space or if we're going to start taking these longer trips to Mars and we're going to live there or we're going to go out to the asteroid belt, whatever that looks like. Yeah. So we at a Messenger Lab and on the Grow Everything podcast have talked to lots of different biologists from different companies. One company is Cultivarium, where they're looking at hundreds of thousands of microbes. And they were talking about the ideal would be millions, but we know that there are trillions of microbes on this planet. But about 500, you're saying, species are found in our stomachs. Have there been any studies or research of foreign microbes being introduced into the human gut and having positive effects? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a lot of probiotics that are out there are essentially that or some fermented foods because they come from a very, very different source. They're not coming from the gut, for example. Some of the best cases and aspects even on probiotics are like soil microbes. And eventually some of them have colonized the gut and get into that. But many of them are foreign. For example, a lot of the probiotics in kombucha that's pretty foreign to the gut. We don't see them native to the gut. So I think there are plenty of examples of that, but mainly obviously from food or soil. Other more like terrestrial environments, I'm not so sure of, but there's definitely, I think, interest along those lines, but it's a very thought-provoking idea. But do they stay in the gut or do they just pass through? It depends. Some of them like that are spore formers, like some soil bacteria that are spore formers, have seemed to stay in, in the gut. They're pretty resilient. Many are transient. It depends on the microbe itself, the type of microbe. There's so many factors, but it's niche. So, for example, in your diet, are you feeding that niche? And maybe your diet doesn't. And so maybe it's going to be much more transient. These are all kinds of the factors towards getting something to colonize the gut. But what's really intriguing here, though, is to your point, you can pretty much think about introducing many different things to change your microbiome. But you can't do that to change your own DNA, for example. We can actively on a daily basis think about how do I want to change my microbiome, but you can't do that to your own DNA. I find that super interesting because we do say the foundation of civilization was agriculture, but then also fermentation is in there too. It makes me wonder if like inherently or intuitively, we humans knew that fermentation was something that would be healthy for our overall health. And that's part of the reason why we have fermented foods in every culture. Yeah, absolutely. And I think from even how we've evolved, obviously from breast milk, I think maybe Carl, I might've mentioned this previously, was the reason why there's supposed to be certain types of bacteria in a baby is that they feed on sugars only found in breast milk. 99% of that sugar goes to the microbes. They don't go to the baby. It goes to feeding those microbes. And so we've evolved <laughs> to be consuming that essentially for milk and obviously other fermented things. And with human breast milk, there is a microbiome. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. I love this conversation, Stephanie. I want to be mindful of our time. Irom, I know you have a couple more questions, but I also want to just know, is there anything that we haven't covered around what you're doing that we should have asked you so far? Um, yeah, how we use synthetic biology at Persephone. We are developing products both in therapeutics, obviously for oncology namely, as well as consumer. And that's starting with infant and maternal products. And the way we see the difference between the two, our therapeutics, we use synthetic biology. So we genetically engineer gut microbes to become essentially therapeutic factories. So from all of the data, for example, like the Argonaut study we discussed, we find out what are the biomarkers or drug targets in the gut. We find out which metabolic pathways are dysregulated. We then take those genes and we then clone them into various gut bacteria to then produce metabolites that we think have therapeutic activity. And that becomes essentially the basis of our therapy. And towards that, we mentioned earlier, these microbes are oxygen sensitive. And as a consequence, many people do not want to work with them. And so we have a lack of genetic tools. We partnered with Ginkgo Bioworks last year to develop a best-in-class toolkit to engineer one major family of gut bacteria, bacterioides, to become one of our main chassis for our therapeutics. 
And that program has come along quite well. And we're now poised now for the next generation of our therapeutics to get through our pipeline and into the clinic. And so that's where we use synthetic biology. With our consumer products, they're wild-type organisms. We do try to give them the prebiotics for them to survive, but we're very cognizant that the consumer may not be ready for GMOs, and nor has the FDA figured out a path for that either. But we know for therapeutics, there is a path forward pioneered by companies like Synlogic, for example. Yes, I think it's worth it just for the audience to understand a company like Synlogic has, I think, recently been granted FDA approval for a engineered microbe that is introduced as a medicine. I don't remember exactly what the indication is, but I think you should mention, Stephanie, what the products are that you guys have. You mentioned consumer side, but what about on the therapeutic slash prescription side? Yeah, on the therapeutic side, we're still in preclinical development, but we're developing a microbiome, we'll call it a recombinant live biotherapeutic product. That's what the FDA likes to term our living medicines that are engineered. And we are developing them so that they can be taken in combination with immunotherapy drugs so they can enhance their efficacy. There's a good majority of cancer patients that don't respond, and now we know that microbiome is very much responsible. We're hoping to shift microbiome so they can respond much more favorably. And initially, we're looking at lung cancer and colorectal cancer. And what about on the consumer side? What's the product you guys are working on there? Right now, we're working on a probiotic for infants based on strains that we've isolated from healthy babies, as well as a maternal product that would combine with that. And in terms of understanding the prebiotics that would be bundled with these products, we are working on the breast milk side, the leading authority in breast milk and the sugars. Lars Bode, who's actually down the street from us at UC San Diego, the only milk institute in the world is down the street from us. So we're very excited about that collaboration, but also commercializing our infants as well as maternal products probably later next year. What's the difference between a prebiotic and a probiotic and how do you use them? Great question. The prebiotic, it's like fiber. It's essentially the sugar that feeds the microbes, eventually becomes the sugar that feeds the microbes. The probiotic are the bacteria themselves. And there's a new terminology being used, postbiotic, which is essentially the fermentation product of the probiotics, but also could be parts of the microbes themselves. So that's a new area that's growing in the field. That's super interesting. So one of the things I was really excited about that you mentioned, because I've been thinking about this a lot and Carl and I have talked about it a few times on the podcast, is the idea of food as medicine and the food prescriptions. I'm really excited to learn more about how that partnership's developing and what you end up discovering from that study. Okay, so you're thinking about food prescription to analyze your microbiome, what's going on inside and all the different microorganisms that are there. But then on the flip side, the food itself had its own microbiome, the soil microbiome as well, that is on plants, even being able to genetically engineer that food to be friendly with the microbiome in your body. So there is like this continuum that you're looking at. And I'm just so curious, have you thought about how engineered foods play a role in microbiome. Absolutely, because that's a huge part of food as medicine right now. We think of the microbiome of the soil and how that impacts the nutrients in the plants and then we eventually eat. And that different content of nutrients impacts the microbiome and then our overall health. So we're very interested in that. And how we've been thinking about it is it's hard, it's very expensive to do human clinical studies. And so one way that we've been trying to mimic what happens in the human gut is in our laboratory. And so we've developed, I call it the microbiome avatar. So it's a microbiome on a chip. So essentially when we collect whole poops from everybody in the country, we essentially can put it on a chip, a normal 96 well plate, and we can do a fermentation. So it mimics the metabolism of the gut microbiome. And that's where we can then evaluate all of our therapeutics, our prebiotics, our probiotics, anything you want, including plants. We can look at the bioactives, the nutrients, the different combinations. What does it impact on someone's microbiome? Does it impact the metabolites they produce? And if you took the supernatant of that fermentation, could you run it on an immune cell assay? Could you see if it caused inflammation or reduced the inflammation? If you took and coupled that to neurons, could you see what impact it would have? And so that's what we've been developing out actually at Persephone to do large scale in vitro prototyping on that to answer those kinds of questions. But that's something we're very 
interested in, and from going to food as medicine conferences recently, it's of discussion, right? How can we better quantitatively track this? How can we think more about it? And even soil microbiome. How do we think about how that whole value chain is? Thank you so much for sharing all the amazing work you're doing. We are going to keep track of what you're doing. And thank you. it's just we applaud you for all your work. I'd like to ask if you have any books or movies that you can recommend to our audience that helped inspire you to look at biology or the microbiome or anything you're watching that can point our audience to. Yeah, yeah. It's both a book and a movie by the same group. One of the things when I started the company, what my thought process was, and the reason why I even named the company Persephone was Persephone was the Greek goddess of the underworld. And Hades, the god of the underworld, lured her by a pomegranate. She was very fascinated. What struck me as interesting was unique gut microbes to produce the anti-cancer metabolites associated with pomegranates. Most people don't have that. Those microbes have gone missing, namely because of the Western diet. And so this whole concept of missing microbes was one of the major themes for me starting this company and wanting to discover what do people really need? How can I intervene and put that back? I want to put us back in a different landscape for our microbiome for health for the rest of our lives. And I think the book that really got me even thinking more along those lines was Missy Microbes by Martin Blazer, as well as the recent documentary that came from his efforts and others around the world at understanding how these microbes are essentially going extinct. We have a biodiversity problem, obviously, around the world, but also in our microbiomes. And then they're doing conservation efforts, saving the microbiomes of individuals around the world because some of these species may go extinct. It's not just happening in the environment. It's also happening within us, right? We're seeing it with the babies. It's happening. Yeah, their movie, the documentary that came out earlier this year is called The Invisible Extinction. I think it's on Amazon. So I definitely recommend watching that. But it was his book on kind of the connection between antibiotics and obesity that really got me thinking more along the lines about what is happening to the microbiome and how these pharmaceuticals have had such an impact on the composition of the gut. And we don't even, it's never been thought of to look at only in the last decade or so, how is antibiotics really impact in the gut? And most of drug development that's happened historically has never conceived of the microbiome. You don't have to show microbiome data to the FDA. It's not part of an investigational new drug application, but maybe it should be. Maybe we should be developing drugs that are not detrimental to the gut. So I would recommend that book. It's very thought-provoking. It's important to learn about some of these things, as well as the documentary kind of highlights that some of these leading researchers aren't doing the space to, one, characterize the microbiome, but understand what's going wrong. That's amazing. I definitely want to check that out. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for taking the time yeah. to speak with us today. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it and appreciate the opportunity. We'll have to have you back on soon for sure. Wow, Carl, what did you think of that interview? Stephanie is awesome. That is one of our great great interviews. It just reinforces this idea that biology is so complicated and you can't always simplify things down to their, I don't know, down to their core. I don't know how I want to say it. Things are not always as simple as they appear. The environment that is in our bodies are in our bodies are so incredibly complex. We still have not uncovered how everything works. And the microbiome this area of study is probably only a couple of decades old. So it's something that's still very new and we have a lot to learn. What did you think? Yeah, I loved it because I've been so curious about the microbiome for years. One of the, actually one of the companies that came into my purview years ago that got me starting to think about the microbiome, it's a company called Calliope. I'll have to look up what they do, particularly nowadays, but I know that their focus was the gut-brain access. And I was just fascinated about an access from the gut to the brain and knowing that there are trillions of microbes in our gut that don't share our DNA, but there's an access from them to our brain. I was like, wait, what's going on here? And I felt that Stephanie does a really good job of setting up what the microbiome is and what it's capable of and how we can navigate it. And she's walking her talk by the different projects that are coming out of Persephone Biosciences. 
And whether it's clinical or the food is medicine project that she's working on, which I'm excited to learn more about. I've been waiting for something like that too. And the fact that there's been this unknown because there is a lot of microbes, a lot of cells, a lot of processes that are happening simultaneously. But now that more people have a command over machine learning and AI, and there's tools to make it more accessible for different software engineers to be able to analyze this data on the trillions of data points level in a way that's fast. I'm excited to learn more. What are some of the deeper learnings that are going to come out of Persephone Biosciences? What are we going to learn about the microbiome that's going to help us? I feel like what's going to happen is that there's going to be a lot of duh, obviously type of <laughs> information that comes out. Have more probiotics or exercise more because that's going to help the microbiome get the energy they need in order to do X, Y, and Z. But I think that type of data, it's going to help more light bulbs to go off in people's heads because when you're told to do something, people aren't as motivated until they learn why they have to do something. And I think with the microbiome and all the analyses and insights that are going to come out of this data crunching, it's going to help a lot of people live healthier lives. Your gut is called your second brain. It is because of that direct gut brain access. I think that's why they say that. But what did you think about the whole thing about going into space and how space affects your microbiome? I, I had no like, idea. I was like, obviously, <laughs> of course, no, I, it was more you know, retrospect. People are just thinking of going into space safely. There's just so much nuance that people are starting to uncover. And yeah, if you're eating a certain food constantly, that's space food. And I'm sure that there's been evolution in space food. But I remember as a young girl going to the Smithsonian, they had like space ice cream and things that were packaged, probably with a lot of preservatives that might not be microbiome friendly. So if you're eating it for months at a time, there could be a shift. I'm curious about what the shifts are because of the microgravity, like what is actually happening. When I went to Stephanie's session at Beto about space, and I went to a lot of the sessions in the space track for the conference, they were talking about how a lot of biological processes shift in microgravity because there's no gravity and they're not limited to gravity and are able to have different biological processes, which in turn then have different protein expression, which then in turn have possibly different phenotypes. So I thought that was really interesting. And how does that affect different microbes when they go out into space? So there's a lot to be learned. And that's just about humans going into the space station, just going into space. On the flip side, it's terraforming planets, right? You need microbes to cultivate the land, create an atmosphere for humans to survive. It's just very interesting because the microbiome is key to understanding terraformation and being able to start thinking about that. We talked a little bit about terraformation in space when we were talking to Andrew Hessel in the previous episode, which I recommend people listen to, but I'm just so fascinated about this from all the sci-fi books we read, Carl, and just the fact that science fiction does oftentimes become science fact we've seen in a lot of old literature. So it's just very exciting to me. What about you? What are you thinking about space and microbiomes? Yeah, I'm thinking less about the space stuff, which I think is fascinating, but more on the engineering cells as therapeutics, which Stephanie touched on. She mentioned a company called Synlogic, which has been a pioneer in this. And the idea is that, you know, on the one hand, Stephanie mentioned that one of the products that they're creating is a probiotic for babies or breastfeeding mothers, which is designed based on wild-type organisms. There's that word again, wild-type organisms. So that's one kind of probiotic or prebiotic that people would take. But for people who have an illness, there are companies, including Stephanie's, that are engineering organisms that would be administered to you. I don't know if they're administered orally or otherwise, but those are living organisms that have an effect on your gut and have an overall health effect. Stephanie mentioned that the application that they're working on is in cancer therapy. So if you imagine someone who has cancer who's receiving radiation therapy, their gut is very much affected by it. Just like when you take an antibiotic, the antibiotic not only kills the organism that is making you sick, 
but it also kills a lot of good bacteria. That's why they recommend after you have an antibiotic to take a probiotic or fermented food afterwards to help rebuild your natural microbiome. So I find this idea of living cells, engineered cells as therapeutics to be extremely interesting. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how that progresses. A lot of people are talking about it. I feel like it's in the mainstream conversations. People are talking about the microbiome. They're starting to see how it's important. I think a lot of that started with Jamie Lee Curtis. So Jamie Lee Curtis doing the Activia commercials. I feel like that was one of the points in pop culture that brought the importance of eating yogurt to regulate your gut. I feel like that was one of the first things in my timeline, I guess, for me, that was like the first thing. I'm sure there might've been other commercials previous or more recently, but I feel like that was one of the first things for me to place an importance on eating yogurt or fermented foods. (laughs) So I bet there's a lot more going on now. I'm curious to learn how people have been introduced to the concept of a microbiome because it is one of those things where you're like, oh, wow, like the world is bigger than just myself and my opinions, my ego. There are foreign bacteria in my body that I need to take care of. When I think of the microbiome, think of, okay, there's a lot more than just me. How do we work with this ecosystem, which is how all of these microbes need to operate. They can't just operate in isolation, which is something that we pointed out all of these organisms need to work together, which again is analogy for us humans that we need to work together. We can't live in isolation. In my previous career, I worked in the world of aging and older adults, oftentimes some of them living in senior homes where they're alone a lot of the time besides a care worker coming in, hopefully providing them with some companionship, but being alone is detrimental to people's lives and to microbes. So Let's work together to make sure that our microbiome and us making decisions for our microbiome, that we can live in harmony with microbes and with other people. That's my, the more, you know, public service (laughs) announcement. (laughs) Let's just (laughs) type it up and put it on a poster and put it on our wall (laughs) as an affirmation. (laughs) All right. I think that's the pod. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, leave a comment. Please do like us on the channels that you listen to us. And we'll be back next week with another great episode of Grow Everything. See you later.